Hi, everyone, and welcome to our podcast, Adoption is the New Innovation. Is part of our podcast series, Making Financial Advisors Shine. One of the clearest disruptions triggered by the pandemic has been the sharp acceleration of digital adoption across consumer segments, including wealthier and older clients who were previously less digitally inclined with respect to financial advice. That's according to McKinsey. Record numbers of prospective customers want fast, efficient help with investment and life event planning, and they expect personalized digital experiences. In order to meet the evolving needs of new and existing customers, wealth and asset management firms need to diversify their services beyond traditional wealth and asset management. So financial advisors can provide differentiated services combined with in-depth analysis and expert advice for all round fulfilling customer experiences. My name is John Almeida. I'm the Global Head of Wealth and Asset Management here at ServiceNow, and I am thrilled and excited to be joined by an industry luminary, thought leader, Steve Gresham. Steve, please introduce yourself. Hey, John, great to see you again, and thank you for the opportunity. So my thing is retirement, simplifying the experience from the consumer's perspective and making it easier for delivery by the advisor. So I spend all of my time on that mission of reducing friction by working with the top companies in the industry to better serve their advisors, and then also to reach out to the consumer and create a better connection. So we do that through a consulting firm called the Execution Project. And then we also manage a full industry-wide capability of pulling all the top companies together called Next Chapter. Got it. Thanks, Steve. And and beyond the execution project, you and I have been together on this journey for a number of years, including our former employer, Fidelity Investments, where we met. And uh, not only have you forgotten more about this space than I will ever know, when you and I used to be in the gym, you used to bench a lot more than I could ever bench. So you're stronger and smarter than me, which is why I have you on this podcast to begin with. So with that, let's dive right in. Speaking of the execution project and the executionproject.com, I love reading your blogs there, Steve. And, and the one in particular that I enjoyed reading is the title of this podcast, Adoption is the New Innovation. And despite what I said at the outset of digital adoption across consumer segments, can we say the same about those serving those very consumers. For example, I love reading Michael Kitsey's Financial Advisor Tech Solutions Map, but there are 26 portfolio management systems, an equal amount of financial planning tools, CRM, specialized planning. It's, it's dizzying. I was talking to a large wirehouse recently where they almost proudly said that in order for their financial advisors to become, become proficient, they have to learn 40 different applications, right? And and our former employer, Steve, did a, a survey a few years ago, which I feel stands more true today than it did then, accelerated by COVID, which was a comparison between e-advisors, those tech-savvy advisors versus the tech indifferent ones. And they found that 60% are not using tech to the fullest, but the ones who do see 42, 42% higher AUM, 35% more AUM per client, 25% higher compensation. And we all want that utopian advisor-client experience. So, Steve, the question is this. Is it a problem with the software, the users, or both? And why is it so hard to adopt what we already have? 
Well, so there's a lot to unpack there, John. And where I would begin is going back to where we were at Fidelity. So you and I uh, were working around the most basic uh, requirement that you have to have to work in at scale business, which is to be able to have high utilization of CRM because CRM doesn't forget. You know, the computer and the capabilities are going to backstop even the best advisor because it's simply better organized than a human being. And so, you know, one of the things we learn when you work at scale is that you try to figure out how to use the technology to solve the problems first rather than using technology to mop up after a more sloppy human being who really doesn't want to do whatever this kind of pedantic operation might be. So changing the direction and the leadership of technology, putting it first instead of as a cleanup uh, act uh, following up humans, that's the first step to being able to then free the humans fully to be able to engage with the things that only humans can do. Now, having said that, why do we not have the adoption? And the, the easiest way to say it, after a bull market that began in March of 2009, we've had some significant interruptions you know, more recently. But basically, if you're a financial advisor in the United States and you've been working with clients over that period of time, the market has been your friend and has been powering the results of your business. So it's the age old issue. If I don't have to do it, why would I do it? And so I don't do it. And so the 80-20 rule has been pushing forward in the advice industry for a long time now, and it's pretty well documented. And again, you know, I won't even speculate about other firms, which I, I think I know a fair amount about the numbers, but the 80-20 worked really well at Fidelity where we could, if we wanted to, make an awful lot of our number, whatever the results might be, with 20% of the clients driving 80% of those results. That is even more true in full service, traditional full service, where in some cases it's even more pronounced. So if you can get that kind of result from a small minority of the clients, where is the incentive on the individual advisor level to create a more pervasive, more complete solution for the broader group of people? That's what we attacked at Fidelity. That's what turned the numbers around. Got it. So so I, I like what you said there, Steve, and, and I think it goes back to uh, behavior change is hard and it can't always be solved by another system of record, right? The last thing these advisors need is uh, more data entry, right? What they're really looking for is a system of action so they can adopt more of that 80-20 rule so they can spend time where it matters most with their clients. So, so I think it goes back to what we said earlier in that advisor client utopia that that we all want to to get to you, you mentioned in your blog Steve that the average book for every advisor is about 125 families and the potential of 30 to 40 accounts with several custodians 65% of advisors say that establishing relationships relationships with clients next generation heirs is the most important factor for the growth of their business yet 50% say it's difficult to make progress at it since it takes so much time. That's according to BusinessWire. Further, BusinessWire said that 59% say that demonstrating their value beyond portfolio construction is one of the most important factors for their success. But 42% say it's challenging because of the time needed to deliver a broader range of advice and services. And obviously clients may not be getting the attention 
from their advisors that they want. How many really get those periodic reviews? And then you got the robos knocking on the door saying, if you're not getting it here, then maybe you can get it from us. So, so the question is this, Steve, is the advisor losing the opportunity to offer additional services to their clients? And, and why are the number of engaged clients so small? So I think first you got to back up and segment the industry because it's very tempting to say advisors and then leave it at that as though it's, you know, one uniform cohort. It's not, you know, so we think there are, if you talk to the average CEO of a full service firm, you know, they'll talk to you about top advisors, which somewhere between five and 10%, sometimes they think it's higher, but by definition, it's probably not more than 10% of their population. There's probably another 10 to 15% at the very low end that that probably not the right job for them, or they should become part of a team or something, but the current structure doesn't really allow them to acquire the kind of business that would make a big difference. The I think the, the biggest challenge, though, is that movable middle. You know, it's that big group of advisors. Some CEOs tell us that that's two-thirds of, of all the people. That's really where the focus needs to be because you want to solve at the median for one of these large-scale firms. And, and even more recently, I've started to think that even a smaller firm ought to be looking at the median as well because that's where you're going to have the kind of center point for your practice. That's what defines you. If you were to grab the client at the median in your client list of 125 households, how would they characterize what you do? And my guess is, you know, again, looking at, at top advisors and all kinds of advisors and looking at it at scale and looking at it at small scale, you know, over the years, the difference between the median and the top handful of clients, what they think you do is dramatically different, not a little bit different, dramatically different. So we see a truncation in the array of services moving after about the top 20 households. And that's what we're saying is the opportunity. If you can do it and you know how to do it, you can do it organically, almost without thinking for the top 20 households, then what is it that we could do to get you into the rest of those households? That's where the opportunity is. That's what, what I'm saying is really, it, it's not so much the ideas. It's a little bit of a take on the old will and skill issue. The skill is definitely there if you've been able to solve for the top 20 households. The will is whether or not you can then figure out how to create the processes, get them in place so that you can extend that same offering to the rest or a meaningful, a meaningful additional group of those clients. Does that make sense? It, it does, Steve. It, it sounds like it's also a question of scale, right? The, the advisor just humanly can't cover the amount of household, 125 families. It's just not, not scalable. So, so the question is, is how do they leverage technology to be more effective and efficient and not just limited to the advisor, right? It's all the supporting functions in and around uh, the advisor in the middle and back office to make them more efficient. W would you agree with that, Steve? Yeah, I think basically what you have to do with an advisory offering is you have to turn it upside down. Instead of trying to figure out how to plug in technology to do some of the things you don't want to do, as I said before, or things you think are quite rote or just, you know, just not worth your time, you got to turn it around, turn the thing upside down, look at how many people are there. The financial advisory firm of the future is being designed right today by the needs of, the, of their very top clients. And I would say that every single day for as long as it'll take to sink in, figure out what you want to have as your ideal clientele 
in five years, figure out who those people are today, the ones you do not want to lose, the ones you want to keep there for five years, even 10 years, and then figure out what it is that is going to keep them around. I think you'd find if you turned it upside down, you would then say, how can I get this particular thing that most of them say is important? How can I get that to all of them? So envision a pyramid. How is it that I can stretch what I think, what they have just told me is most important? How can I make sure I get that to everybody? At its core, that is the value proposition of a robo. Because a robo has said, you know what? We may not be able to call you. We may not be able to do this. We may not be able to go out to lunch. But you know what? We're not going to forget when you turn 63 and start thinking about Medicare. We are not going to forget to rebalance your account and send you that reminder. We are not going to forget to tell you you've got a cash balance in excess of what you told us you wanted to hold because they're open 24-7, 365, those little gremlins inside of the technology capability. So when you start thinking about it that way, what can we give and what can we make sure everybody gets? Then it becomes that much easier to start adding additional components, adding additional capabilities. And then you can ask yourself, do I want to give that capability to everybody? And you certainly want to be able to ask the question, do I want to give that capability to somebody? And what am I going to charge for it? Instead of what we see today, which is advisors continuing to run from the value proposition and saying they're going to keep adding services, even though they're primarily compensated by AUM fees, which are just going to continue to go down. Build the pyramid from the ground up, but make sure you catch everybody because that's where you're going to lose the clients when they think that you've forgotten about them. Makes a lot of sense to me, Steve. And, and, and I like what you said about the clientele. So let's expand upon that a little bit and talk about the, the quote unquote next big thing, right? We, we always, I always feel like this industry is chasing the next shiny object, right? Crypto, NFTs, looking into the crystal ball around certain stock prices. But what's really the next big, big, big thing? is we know the population isn't getting any younger, Steve. 65 plus is now the average age of a U.S. financial advisory client. We've been talking about the intergenerational transfer of wealth for years, accelerated by COVID. New estimates have it ballooned to $68 trillion over the next 25 years. In fact, by 2030, American women are expected to control much of the $30 trillion in financial assets that the baby boomers will possess, a, a potential wealth transfer of such magnitude that it approaches the annual GDP of the United States. That's according to McKinsey. We also know, Steve, that money in motion is at 350% above average. Again, accelerated by COVID and 69 million new retirees. So the question is this, Steve, isn't the next big thing right under our noses and has been for quite some time, and it's not necessarily chasing that shiny new object. It's really that intersection of wealth and healthcare. Yes. And, and so, you know, there's, a, there's an old phrase, uh, and I'm, I'm not sure where it came from, which is the risk of, of, you know, talking to me at my age, but, you know, there's a difference between change and real change. And change, we see all the time. Change, I would suggest, is exactly what you said, John. Change gets people's attention, and it gets manifested when there is a shiny object to offer up. And, but it's really hard without the benefit of historical hindsight to be able to understand if you've got real change in front of you. I, you know, I always, as you know, I always point back to the American automobile industry, which continues to be, in my mind, 
the worst economic calamity of any industry in the history of man, where more opportunity was lost in a fairly short period of time, but it wasn't as obvious in the moment because the consumer sentiment was shifting. But you know, for that multi-trillion dollar organization to have totally dominated the Fortune 500, uh, the very top companies, back as recent as 1965, and to have all of them disappear over that period of time and have that business fall more in, than in half and go from three primary providers with 90% of the market to now 23 providers scattered all over the globe, that is the kind of transformation that's happening in financial services. It's just harder to see. But the thing that drives it is actually the exact same factor, which is the demography. So the automobile industry in the United States was dominated by the baby boom generation that was rolling out of being born at the end of World War II, and it was their parents' preferences that were replaced by the boomers. The boomers have only begun to arrive very, very recently into the retirement market, so we haven't begun to see the impact of their demand. We've seen the impact of their, of their growth along the way, this modern market, including the company we work for, Fidelity, and all these other providers, basically all been founded on the backs of the activity created by this baby boom generation. And now as the, those people, as you said, median age right now is 66, when you work with that group, they dominate, they continue to dominate. So it's not as though they aren't already in charge. What we're watching is that their preferences are shifting. And most of them still have some aging parents or, or family relatives of some kind that they're going to have to deal with. And a lot of them have adult children who they're concerned about. That now is a three-generation client. So if we said, as you, as you mentioned before, if we think 125 households is the average uh, kind of book for a financial advisor, we just tripled the number of families associated with that, right? So how do you work across all those accounts? And I, can't, I think basically the point is, as you're saying, with the next big thing, the next big thing is not something that is an explosion. It's a gradual foundational shifting of the landscape, which has been going on since these people were born as early as 1946. We don't adjust to that. We don't see the implications coming. But this is going to be different because the implications to an aging population not only includes what happens to their parents, what happens to their kids, what happens when 25% of people over 65 are impacted by some form of incapacity? Well, that changes everything. And you say, well, that sounds like a lot. It's actually low. And what you'll watch over the course of the next five years is there will be a hockey stick in the prevalence of those kinds of activity or those kinds of results where whether it's Alzheimer's, dementia, myocardial infarction, whatever it might be, people will be increasingly incapacitated. Somebody in the family only takes one out of three generations to change everybody's lives. That is going to change how people value advice. And then we're also going to start seeing that most people heading into retirement have overlooked something or didn't consider something. Might not even be financial, might be emotional, might be that they're not ready, might be that pickleball is not everything they were hoping it would be. And so there's going to be, I think, a very dramatic change in the level of anxiety. If you think that all of that is impossible, I'd have you look at, as you said, look at the pandemic and the impact on the healthcare system. 
you ain't seen nothing yet. We're in the top of the first inning. This is going to be a big, big change. Yeah, agreed, Steve. And and those demands aren't going to lessen because expectations are different from the boomers to the millennials to the Gen X, Y, Z, years, et cetera. So it's a moving ball all the time. More pressure on the financial advisor and advisory firms. And frankly, uh, more pressure to automate because throwing bodies at the problem uh, isn't the answer. Those bodies are finite. So closing question for you, Steve. Squid or calamari? What say you, Steve? You got to go calamari, John. You know, you, you call it what you want it to be. <laughs> Don't always call it what it is. <laughs> for those of you listening, that's an inside joke. But if you go to the executionproject.com, one of Steve's blogs will elaborate more. But anyway, Steve, thank you so much, as always, for your brilliant, brilliant insights. I always learn so much when I sit down and, and chat with you. It's been a privilege uh, working with you all these years through through a number of different employers. And again, I, I can't appreciate you enough for bringing these incredible insights to the forefront. They may be uncomfortable for us to talk about, but we have to. Steve, thank you again. John, always great to partner with you. You know, I learned from you as well, my friend, and I'm still following. So hang in there. Thanks, Steve. Appreciate it. And thank you for listening to our podcast.